The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our Not School Learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. Tonight's live podcast will be an examination of the philosophy of Hannah Arendt with a particular focus on the question of public philosophy. Please join me in welcoming Mark, Wes, Seth, and Dylan, the Partially Examined Life, to our conference. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys. He already, he already said that. I don't have to say this. I will say thank you to Justin Pearl for organizing this, inviting us to come down here to Pittsburgh. Woo! Yeah, there is an audience. <laughs> we are live. This recording will become our episode 125. How many people are caught up? Did you all listen to the previous 124 to get ready for this? Yes. At least two people. <laughs> I haven't even listened to all 124. <laughs> The ones that you missed, you're just like, well, I missed it, so I don't have to take that part of my life up with that by listening back to it and imagining what it would be like if I were there. So, uh, We're going to try our best here. to. Well, first of all, I know we were going to do a show of hands. How many people have never heard the podcast, don't know anything about this? Okay, so we have some honest judges here. We're not experts. We just read this book this week, the last couple weeks. In fact, we just read the first part of the book, so... For instance, Entitled Opinions, another good podcast. They have a couple episodes where they talk about the whole book. We don't do that. We would like to dive into the text. So we read of Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition from 1958. We read the first uh, 78 pages. So that's uh, the prologue. That's section one, The Human Condition. That's two, The Public and the Private Realm, which, of course, is sort of like at least what the theme of this conference is supposed to be. I don't know if she talks about philosophy in the public space exactly, because this is all about the vita activa, the active life, not the vita complentiva. Contemplativa. Complentativa is specifically excluded from this, but uh, it's at least there. It's there as a negative. So who wants to start? Just give your initial impressions of this. So Hannah Arendt, I guess, is best known in the popular imagination for Eichmann in Jerusalem, a study in the banality of evil. She also has a very famous two volumes of a potential three-volume set called The Life of the Mind. The Human Condition was a very popular book in its day, as I understand it, but it's not something that shows up on curriculum typically these days in philosophy departments. So it was a real pleasure to discover this because it's a fascinating work that's rich Every page is loaded with ideas. And this particular edition, which I guess is the authoritative edition, the introduction by Margaret Canavan is very good. And she explains how this book was initially met with a certain amount of confusion because it's not argumentative in a traditional philosophical sense. She's not stating a thesis and then arguing for it and giving support in the traditional sense. It's not a genealogy. Well, I think it is kind of a... You think so? Not an, not I, just an, disagree, I disagree with both of the things you just said. <laughs> okay. Well, then please feel free to disagree. She's making a lot of claims without necessarily providing a rigorous or what we would typically consider an ordered or structured argument up to those claims. But that doesn't mean that they're not supported. She has a tremendous amount of textual and historical support for what she's saying, but she's speaking very declaratively in my reading of it. 
I was just thinking it was a genealogy in the sense that in her prologue, she states her purpose, which is to trace the origins of contemporary alienation to what she calls the modern age, which is basically the 17th century on. What she's thinking of as contemporary is the post-atomic age, or what she calls the modern world. And in doing that, she's going to give the genealogy of that alienation in terms of this old distinction between public and private, between the political, in a different sense, mm -hmm. that's collapsed. The argument is that that's the source of our alienation. That's what I took to be the thesis. Your overall point, I, I agree with. It's not, I mean, much of the evidence is sort of elusive or etymological. You know, the idea, for instance, that the law was primarily a barrier meant to keep public and private separate, that uh, is which, in, she gets from a, Greece, which she gets from yes. Heraclitus, a fragment of Heraclitus. And that's the only evidence you get in the text. So it's that kind of, I think you're alluding to that kind of. I'm alluding to the fact that much of the evidentiary work gets done in footnotes, which is not to say it's not convincing. That's just a choice stylistically that's interesting. Dylan, give us your opening thoughts, if you please. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel bad. Mark, now Mark you're is, a physical presence Mark is facing is, the uh, space here. And now, like, Mark, are you the head of the household, or is this a community of peers? <laughs> is this a polis, Mark? Are we all free? I think violence is justified and establish some initial order. See, we're already making inside jokes about the book. We have to talk about the book first. So the phrase that came to my mind when we were t you just mentioned about like the, I guess I didn't find it all that peculiar, but as an academic book, it feels a bit peculiar. And the way she talks about it in the prologue is she says, what I propose, therefore, is very simple. It's nothing more than think about what we were doing. It's to think, think what, what we we're are doing. doing. Yes. Yeah. Think what we are. Yeah, think what we're doing. I wanted to put it about in there, maybe. That's the social creeping in on you. Yeah, maybe it is. So it made an impression on me that this book is essentially one part of a thinking about human living, this being the human condition. The way she starts off on it is, and maybe we can get started on the, you know, the, first, the first chapter, I guess, about the notion of being conditioned at all. She wants to, that, I guess that's where the genealogy part came in for me, is thinking about what factors condition us as human beings and how those conditions have changed and how that's changed us. And she clearly has an argument in that she thinks that some of the ways we've been conditioned by modernity are in some sense negative for our humanity. So just a quick overview of the three sections that we went through, of which is about the first third of the book or so. The prologue that you were talking about, why is this called the human condition as opposed to human nature? What's wrong with human nature? Yep. So saying something about the difference between that. The second one, which is a, quite a bit longer, so uh, part one, is on the vita activa, right? The active life. And she thinks that the philosophy from Plato has always favored the other one, the contemplative life. In making that distinction, in favoring the contemplative life, we've shoved together all of the active parts. So she gives these three divisions that we'll talk about. In fact, there are whole chapters on each of them that we kind of maybe skimmed if we read past what we agreed to read. Labor, work, and action. They're those, all part of media activa. Yeah, those kind of sound like the same thing. But labor is kind of repetitive. The thing you have to do to stay alive, it's attached to your biology, whereas work actually creates works. It is supposedly creating something. It's not just to keep yourself alive from day to day, but creates lasting things. It creates the public world that we then share that then feeds into the human condition. Action, which is the one she's most excited about, <laughs> seems to be specifically political activity. That it's only when you sort of take care of the living, and she gives ancient Greek polis as her prime example, that to be admitted to the debates within the polis, you had to have a certain property level, not because 
it was a plutocracy or something, but because it was only people that had the free time to do this, who had slaves and people at home taking care of all the who, stuff that would feed them. Who had the freedom to yes, do that. Yes, yes. That, yeah. That's what gives you the freedom to then enter this community of peers, the polis, and engage in political activity, which involves mostly trying to convince each other of stuff. Let me just put a little bit of color onto the three sections, labor, work, and action. Labor, you can think of as central to the idea of survival. Labor is everything that we do to survive. So it's procreation, it's eating, it's that sort of thing. Work. So it's both biological processes and it's things that we do to support ourselves. Yes, so I think that's, labor that's in, in the sense of manual labor. And right? so it's also anything that you would think of as tending or repetitive. Sure. It's non-productive. So Wait, the station I, I, we're, we're no, it can be it can be productive in the sense that I think there's labor in the household that doesn't necessarily produce works. She associates the idea of work as creating what she calls artificial things as opposed to things in the natural world and as opposed to the products of pure labor. Um, Which are consumed. Well, and works imply permanence. So labor is with survival, works are for permanence, and action, she says, is what generates history. Action is the interaction or activity between people without an intermediary of a thing or matter. So literally human interaction, which is speech. Well, we'll get to that. That's why I think it has a broader connotation than just politics. It's words and deeds. So then the two are very closely connected. So so that's part one where she gets done at least introducing those three terms. Our third part, part two in the book, is called The Public and the Private Realm which is when she takes the, this, say, this distinction between work and labor, which already you can see sounds a little tenuous. Does it, what do you mean only the products of labor get consumed? What counts as a consumable? Well, different societies are going to have different attitudes toward that. And so our third section, the public and the private realm, gets a little more into her critique. And a lot of it is this historical progression of how the private realm, how the public realm, and in turn how labor and work and the role of the politics and all this, how those have evolved over time. And a lot of it has to do with lionizing well, the, the ancient Greece polis, but there are some things even like the private realm was pretty crappy in ancient Greece in that it was a guy bossing his wife and his kids and his slaves around. So yes, Arendt thinks there have been advances since then in the richness of the private realm, but there was something about the public realm well, that, that's been the, lost. Not the richness of the private realm, the richness of what we call the intimate. Which, intimate, yeah, yes. Richness is predicated yeah. on the, yeah, the, on the discovery of the intimate. feelings and emotions mm-hmm. are heightened and that we have artistic activities like the novel that focus on doing that. But I think she thinks the private realm is impoverished. I mean, in a sense, that the whole point of this section is that there is no public-private distinction. And what we yeah. call the social, housekeeping matters, the matters of necessity, the things we do to survive, have been elevated to the level of the political. So they've become a common interest. So for instance, that's what concern with economics is. The the question is how to manage the society household, and those primarily become political matters, as opposed to whatever it is they did in the polis, which is not entirely. (laughs) In a a funny way, the private has overcome the public, and the public has overcome the private. I mean, both those things have happened in the victory of the social. And both have suffered, and part of her argument is that that's been to the detriment of our human action, because for her, what constitutes our humanness is our ability to act politically. This is the point where I insist that we start building the argument from the beginning. So start reading. Well, but I want to give one more sentence in terms of what this social is. One. Social is the boogeyman of the story. (laughs) Yes, the The social. Yes, agreed. The difference between the political and the social, as we're saying, if the political is like the polis where it's equals gathering together, the social is 
like Heidegger's the they or the thing that Kierkegaard was complaining it's about. It's utterly leveling. Yes, it is conformist. And when you do economic analysis, that's sort of the highfalutin, you know, you're doing a statistical analysis of mm-hmm. masses of people. Mass society is really what is being critiqued here. That in the polis, when you were being political, you were getting in there and exerting your individuality. You were trying to do great works and great deeds yep. by, again, we're not really well, sure what you're really supposed to be shooting for, but it's not what is happening now in politics, which is the which, classes representing their economic interests and crap like that. Yeah. She clearly sees the seeds of existential angst and the seeds of totalitarianism in the same place as the victory of the social. She sees those as conditions of modernity that have the same roots in them. And for her, it's no surprise that you have both of those things happening at the same time. Yeah. All right, so go, let's go to the Can beginning. Go, go I'm the sure beginning. people are going to have a lot of questions. We are going to have a, a part at the end where we will pass the mic around and take some questions or take your comments. So who's familiar with this book? Who's read this book? All right, so wow. many more people are more knowledgeable in the audience than we are about this. And also, people that are being broadcast to via the little tiny mic over there, they are welcome to post on the YouTube channel. And our friend Aaron over here will, at some point during that, look over those and see if any of them are worthy to enter this public space (laughs) as opposed to the internet non-space social I don't know what that is. That sounds violent. It's very leveling that YouTube. Okay. Where did you want to? We're starting the prologue. No, I want to start in section one. We should probably say something at some point a little bit more about how human condition and human nature are not the same thing and why she's not a fan of human nature. So I just want to put that on the table for now but make sure that we keep it in our mind. Yeah, that's the end of the Section one. Yeah. Right. So she says that Vita Activa has its tradition and political thought from the trial of Socrates all the way through Marx. And she says it's originally defined as a life devoted to public political matters. And what she means by that, she's using as a model, she says generally the ancient Greek city-state, but I think we probably all know she probably has one in particular in mind, I imagine. Sparta. No, not Sparta. So the structure that exists in the ancient Greek city-state, according to Anna Arendt, is you have a a private realm and a public realm. The private realm is the household. And the household is constituted by property, not just in the sense of a physical space, although that's important, but the idea that it's productive in the way that it can support the citizen who owns the property. So it's truly private, and it's pre-political, in the sense that there's no law. In other words, the person who is the head of the household is a tyrant in their own household. They have complete and total authority over all members of the household, and there is no intrusion into the household by public law to tell them what they can and cannot do. Um, This is her response to social contract theory, that it's not that we get together and form a state as the first organization, it's that the family unit is first, which is really sort of following Hegel, one person coming, clubbing another on the head, and now you're in my household, my servant, whatever. My slave. <clears throat> and and uh, it's funny that Arendt actually says that they're justified in doing that. Obviously, she doesn't mean this in sort of Kantian moral sense, but that the necessities of staying alive justify the use of violence in this way. Well, she says they thought it justified that. I mean, she doesn't. I, I know I this. I thought she was just twisting the word. The general tone know? of this book, yes, it, you wonder about. <laughs> how she feels about slavery and all these things, but she doesn't give you your opinion about that. I mean, this is later on in the book where she says, what all Greek philosophers took for granted is that freedom is exclusively located in the political realm, that necessity is primarily a pre-political phenomenon. 
Because all human beings are subject to necessity, they are entitled to violence towards others. Violence is the pre-political act of liberating oneself from the necessity of life for the freedom of the world. And so then the polis is the political response to that. So you are active, you are free in the polis without violence. Yeah. That's the big difference. That's a huge difference. But let me do on a mini extended riff. There's a big chunk in here where she talks about Aristotelian and Platonic views on slavery and this idea that slaves were not strong enough to become free, that they deserve where they're at because they didn't exercise the violence enough to make themselves free in this sense. And that's why the notion of this violent overthrow, the freedom that you get by controlling your necessity, you win through violence. And the household is, is constituted by violence. And that's really important because the polis, in her construction of the ancient Greek state, there's no violence in the public realm amongst the equals, precisely because they are equals. So that's section five we just discussed. Did we? You, All right. So no, no, no. Just, uh, this is, this <laughs> yes, that's chapter, that's page 30. Yeah, I read from page 31. I don't know how you thought you were starting at the beginning. <laughs> I am starting at the beginning. You're not at the beginning. Well, I, this is my summary of this. this is, I'm pulling this here. I got a thread wow. here. Wow. Wow. I got lots of notes. Um, <laughs> all right. So. Hey, well, Wes, show them your crazy ass book with your. <laughs> Every page completely covered with, with your own writing. Yeah, first I do this, and then I write my summary. I rewrite it in my much less eloquent <laughs> terms. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so you have the household. Show, show them your... your uh, oh, yeah, this is my, my notebook. Everybody has notebooks like that. Yeah. Okay, so the you polis... graphing on that? Is that have y-axes? <laughs> uh, it is graph paper. I couldn't find a blank page. It one. doubles for where we read Descartes. Okay. <laughs> when I talk to Marilyn about uh, proto-Pythagoreans. Um, okay, so you have this picture of the household constituted by violence, totally private. So then you have the public space, the polis, which is where these free individuals who've been freed from necessity come together. And that is the political realm. And in this realm, there is law, because it's a realm amongst equals, and it's ruled by rhetoric, and persuasion as opposed to violence. This is very important to keep in mind for later on. And this, for her, is the original sphere of action in the sense that we talked about the Vita Activa where you said labor, work, and action. This is the original sphere when action was speech and deeds in this purely political space as defined in the Greek sense. The basic idea is that the way we think of the active life, we think of what we got from Plato, which is that there's the, and Aristotle, that there's the contemplative life, and then there's the active life. And the active life lumps together everything that's not contemplative. Well, actually, I think Plato and Aristotle, it's more complicated. I think she attributes the rise of that to Augustine. But the idea is that the dividing line at some point fell between public life or political life and those other activities. And that sets us up for this transition in Chapter 2, where the dividing line gets shifted and what we're traditionally thought of as distinct, the public and the private or the uh, political and the household, get squished together. And now there's a new dividing line between that and what she calls the intimate. So in that old system where you've got the public and then the private, which is devoted to the economic, so where does philosophy fall? Or is it just not significant enough to fall on either of those? Philosophy is a response to that division. It doesn't fit in that division initially. It's a response to that. That's how I understood it. But we, we unless, unless you were to understand philosophy as only being the contemplation of truth, 
and that then it would fit in the contemplative part. If that's what you understood philosophy to be, is only that. Right. It sounds like it's a later, it, there's some dialectic going on. It's something that comes out of the connection between them because it is neither of those things. You don't have Socrates going up in the Athenian assembly and saying, my fellow gentlemen, uh, what is truth? And having and expecting to have the kind of dialogue that he had, because it's among equals and not Socrates and his little whipping boys, that they wouldn't have quite the same dynamic. As it wasn't Socrates' whipping boy, it was Minos' whipping boy. <laughs> Socrates was talking to him. Socrates and his whipping boys. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Minos, all right, all right. So, literal and figurative whipping boys. All of them... <laughs> Whipping. So, one thing about the beginning is she just lays out what she's thinking about in terms of the human condition. Yeah. Right? So, articulating labor, work, and action, and then this whole idea of being conditioned. And the idea is that everything we come into contact with conditions us. And that it conditions us, and then we also, as human beings, are capable of creating things that condition us. Yeah, everything we create. So The thing is, she says that in the beginning, but it doesn't really start to make sense until you get a little bit later on. Maybe that's why I reordered to make the narrative better for our audience. So you're rewriting well, you your book for While we're on that, do you're rewriting your book for her. Let's, get, us, let's get the, the, the <laughs> distinction between the human condition and human nature that she makes in this. I think that's a good, good place to start. Well, the distinction is basically the conditions of human existence can never really explain who we are because they can never condition us absolutely. So what's a better way to put this? There's no human nature for her in the sense that, and this is related to her talk of political action as an expression of individuality, as opposed to this idea that human beings can be the objects of science and that their behavior can be predicted, that there's a certain kind of uniformity. That assumes a certain kind of uniform human nature. But whatever our conditions, they never absolutely determine us in that way. So for instance, I think she gives the example of human beings going off into space and being entirely conditioned only by what is artificial, having no escaping, natural element. Escaping the world. To that. Yeah. So human conditions can actually change radically without changing the... Well, Presumably changing human nature. It's just that right. we couldn't yeah. even know what this human nature is unless we were God, she says. Yeah. She says, first of all, the human condition she's looking at is not human nature. And the f first sign of that is that there's this whole realm, the contemplative life, which she has a whole other two books on, that is not considered here. And that that would be part of any kind of full consideration. So that's one thing. And then she's also doubtful that human nature even exists. She's doubtful herself. And if it does exist, she says... If we have a nature or an essence, this is a bottom of 10, then surely only a God could know and define it. And the prerequisite would be that he be able to speak about who as though it were a what. Right. So there's something about subjectivity that defies attributing an essence, basically. Yes. Well, and somewhere later she says that it's only because of this horrible situation where we've lost track of what the political realm and so true freedom is that we, we don't have the free will determinism question posed in philosophy the way it is, that we've lost track of what it really is to be compelled like a slave as opposed to being free like a politician in the polis. That doesn't seem to do justice to uh, the episode on free will, say that we did, but let's give that to her. Also in the prologue here, Wes mentioned this going into space, and this is actually what she starts with, that how, what Sputnik. a monumental importance, yes, Sputnik, the 1957 space launch, that this was our 
our first step toward escape from man's imprisonment to the earth, that this is something that we've always wanted to do. And the other thing she brings up, one of my favorite social issues, is automation, how we're saying labor seems like a primary thing of the human condition. Well, if you make enough machines so that people don't have to labor as much or much at all, so we're all more or less in free in the sense that these uh, Athenian politicians were, then what does that do to the human condition? It seems that we're we're entering a whole new realm. One of the points she makes there to say why she's writing this book, why she wants to promote a more thoughtful approach to life, a more free approach to life, is because she thinks part of this incursion of society onto every single realm of human experience has resulted in us becoming a laboring animal. She has another Latin term for it. Animal laborons. Animal laborons. That we define ourselves in terms of our jobs. Basically, if we get this freedom, we don't know what to do with it. And that's very clear in economic discussions now. When you read articles, there was one in the Atlantic recently about automation's finally coming down the pipe. Of course, this is 1958. She thought it was going to happen within the next 10 years from then. It always seems to get pushed down the road. But eventually, we'll get enough so we'll run out of full-time jobs or whatever and have to think of something else to do with it. But we are in such a state, obviously, according to all our political rhetoric, where the thought of actually making it a goal for people to work 10 hours a week or five hours a week or whatever, which might be necessitated by this, either that or 90% unemployment, is just something that's not even on the table. So that's the kind of thing she wants us to reconsider. The other part of that is uh, this attempt to escape from, that sounds like maybe a good way that we could escape from one of the human conditions. It's something that mankind has always wanted to be free from laboring. And so maybe we should just kind of remember that and adjust ourselves appropriately. But Another thing people use this book for is to criticize things like transhumanism or genetic engineering, ways that we can write into nature, that we can take these acts. And she talks specifically about the physics of her time that was you know, quantum mechanics that was getting so that yeah. nobody could even understand it anymore. You couldn't even explain it. And she says... You couldn't speak it. Right, right. Well, that, well really understand. Important. We will forever be able to understand, to think and speak about things which nevertheless we are able to do. Yes. Page three. Well, it's... Yeah, but So we're in danger. Let me read that whole. But it could be that yeah, we, who are... are page this is page three. three. She's worried yes. about the loss of the ability to think. That's why Dylan's mention of this idea that she wants to think what we are doing. Mm-hmm. So her worry is that we're going to lose the ability to talk about what we do. And again, this brings us to this and, important and unity think- between speech and action. But it could be that we, who are earthbound creatures and have begun to act as though we are dwellers of the universe will forever be unable to understand, that is, to think and speak about the things which nevertheless we are able to do. So technology gives us the leverage to do all of these new things, but it also interferes with our ability to talk about them, especially if we cede that ground simply to scientists, because talking about these things, even if they're scientific in nature, is not itself a scientific activity. Yeah, so at the end of that paragraph... If it should turn out to be true that knowledge in the modern sense of know-how and thought have parted company for good, then we would indeed become the helpless slaves, not so much of our machines as of our know-how, thoughtless creatures at the mercy of every gadget, which is technically possible, no matter how murderous it is. You start smelling Heidegger a little bit there. Boy, man, if she had known about the iPhone. (laughs) Yeah. About the scientist stuff, she says on the next page, The reason why it may be wise to distrust the political judgment of scientists qua scientists is not primarily the lack of character, that is like they're evil or something like that, but that they did not refuse to develop atomic weapons or their naivete, that they did not understand that once these weapons were developed, they would be the last to be consulted about their use. But precisely the fact 
that they move in a world where speech has lost its power. And whatever men do or know or experience can make sense only to the extent that it can be spoken about. There may be truths beyond speech, and they may be of great relevance to man in the singular, that is, to man insofar as he is not a political being, whatever else he may be. Men in the plural, that is, men insofar as they live and move and act in this world can experience meaningfulness only because they can walk with and make sense to each other and to themselves. Talk with, right, not just walk. Talk with and make sense to each other and themselves. So this is why being unable to speak science for her is, it's not that you can't write down an equation, it's not that you can't explain it, but that the speaking of what you're doing, you're not able to completely articulate. And I guess she doesn't talk about it this way, but she must have in mind the interpretive problems in quantum mechanics. I'm pretty sure she did. You could predict an experiment and write down an equation and have it, in fact, be the most successful theory ever in the sense that I can do a measurement out to seven digits or eight digits or ten digits. I can tell you what's a measurement of in the sense of these lines, but I can't tell you what a wave function is. Yeah, the reason why I also thought of quantum mechanics, just because she says that this language of mathematical symbols was originally meant only as an abbreviation for spoken statements, but we've gotten to the point yes. where They're not. you can no longer translate. There are mathematical you know, well, statements, that, which you really can't translate. Well, in fact, that would be the power of it, right? Yeah. Is that early right. on, they, they are just a transliteration of language, but the development of the symbolism that has its own internal meaning and, and grammar. I would also point out that this is important only to the extent that the scientific things that we're unable to put into words and to speak to each other impact our lives in a political or what we'll come to talk about as a social sense. If it was just a way of impacting works that didn't condition us, although they all do, then it wouldn't be as big a deal. The fact is she's mentioning specifically she's thinking atomic power, she's thinking nuclear bomb, you know, she's thinking about but, things where well, yeah. those who play a role yeah. Yeah. in policy in society and that we... It's more fundamental, in, yeah. It's the idea that it deprives us of the ability to be actors, to act, because if we can't speak what we're doing, right. we're no longer in the realm of action. I understand. I see why she thinks this is particularly true in quantum mechanics or that she would be influenced by that. But why is it any different than with any other kind of technology? in terms of conditioning us, in terms of having know-how that we can't explain. It seems like the history of technology is riddled with that kind of thing. We could build lenses before we knew how lenses work. We could build batteries before we knew how batteries work. We could build guns before we knew how guns work. All, in fact, most of the things that we built, we don't know how they work. We were able to build them before that. And then That's they, not to hold our feet to the fire on the quantum mechanics thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm one, yeah. I'm trying to make sense of her claim of this being peculiarly modern, and that it's particularly important right now, not simply in the age of nuclear power. Well, she gives this demarcation where the modern age is. It's the post-atomic age. That's specifically what she means. I guess guess I'm trying to make, I'm trying to... Modern world, sorry. Her analysis seems to apply more than that, unless I'm missing something. Well, the modern, she's linking what she calls a modern world, it's a little confusing, the modern world, which is the post-atomic age, to the modern age, which is 17th century. <laughs> That's part of the whole Fair genealogy, to trace that back. I have the same question. Technology has been around for a long time, with specific, because she doesn't explain that. It's what been it, conditioning what, us for a long time. specifically about the post-atomic age, other than the fact that we can completely destroy ourselves? Maybe it has something to do with this idea of the ability to leave Earth and the go into space. This, 
this idea that now we can actually, we have the means to, to escape the incredible earth. means to try to do that. Because escaping the earth is just a, for her, a metaphor for trying to escape the human condition. Right. In the sense that the earth provides what is natural for us and is the realm of necessity. So it seems what is essential is that the political process, she thinks, is broken. That perhaps, even if we had really complicated science, we had science advisors that would then advise us, and then we would have a public debate on whether we should use biotechnology or whatever, then perhaps we could then proceed. This is what she's recommending, that we proceed with deliberation and you know, hopefully avoid catastrophe. If everything is the social instead of the political, so there is no formal forum, instead you have competing companies just trying to outdo each other, or different governments around the world, just, you know, somebody, even if we have a sensible discussion here about not going forward in some dangerous technological area, somebody else will go forward. And that's the way that these innovations come about, not from the decisions of a deliberate body, but organically, unconsciously, in an uncontrolled See, I'm a little more, I'm a little more confused about this because of that part that Dylan read, where it's not a matter of the lack of character. It's not that they didn't refuse to develop atomic weapons or that... It seems not to be a policy, a question of did we or did we not have the right policy. It seems well, is that, like she's trying to get at something more fundamental, although it's not exact, this whole idea of speaking what you do. but Well, but isn't yeah. it that for her that scientists in what they do are utterly unprepared to be political? They're unprepared for any kind of political activity because they can't speak about what they're doing. And so it requires, in her argument, a different act than what's intrinsic to a scientist to make that articulation. So... Hence the thinking, what we do. I think she still has in mind this idealized state where all of the actors in the political realm are empowered and equal mm -hmm. and that they're making decisions which impact. And the threat that rears its head in science kind of does come up in the social, which we have to talk about. But basically, it's much worse when you have a situation where instead of free actors who are engaged with each other politically and making decisions and speaking and persuading... Instead, we have this great leveling thing called society that dictates behaviors to people and where technology can run away and start, we, we start to get this pervasive influence where we're not consciously making decisions amongst ourselves about how to, to act, but instead we're having behaviors imposed upon us. We're not but acting I, freely. We're not acting freely. Yeah. And, um, and, and but, that seems to be like her biggest concern, right? That the human condition, there are things that condition us, but for her the greatest flourishing of the human being under a human condition is being free. And that there are a variety of threats to that, and some of which she thinks are peculiar to the modern era. Let's rewind back then and start talking about that. We'll go back to the beginning. Vida activa. Oh, to the, no, to the social. Let's talk about how the social okay. emerges out of that. Would you like to hear me make a mistake so you can correct me now? Sorry. <laughs> that is, I, I do thrive on that. <laughs> so she says that the Aristotelian formulation... Zoan politikon, which is also reads as Zoan logon ekon, should be read as a living being capable of speech. And she says this is mistranslated in Latin or misappropriated as animal, ra the rational animal, animal rationale, or worse, she says, social animal. Mm -hmm. In fact, she blames Latin and Rome for bringing in the notion of the social, which she says has no equivalent in Greek. That basically the political becomes the social in the Roman lexicon. And part of the reason for that is that Rome is a different kind of political entity to begin with. It's a nation state as opposed to a city state. It's a much broader governmental entity that requires a different kind of administration. And in fact, this idea of the social or social economy means that the nation state treats itself as a collective household. 
So the transition from Greece to Rome is a transition from the political to the social in precisely that the Roman state wants to take care of its economic realm. It treats itself as though it has to manage the expenses and manage the, the household and manage production and all this sort of thing. And it starts to take that first step away from the autonomous or the, the, the sort of individualized household that produces free citizens. And instead, now we have a state that does that. And one of the things that's critical is that when you pull the duties of the household out of the private sphere into the public sphere, you pull violence with it. So the purpose of the political realm ceases to be completely governed by speech and persuasion, and now you introduce the element of violence into the political realm. And that's, I think, where it all starts to go downhill. Hmm? Where are you? Uh, Let me look with at the, the, with with the violence for, part. Yeah, I don't remember uh, that claim either. <laughs> Right. Bringing a violence into the... So I think we're in Section 5. Okay. See, I thought the big um, danger of the social realm was with everybody poo-pooing each other into conformity, not the entrance of violence in the way that the man would beat his slaves. Now is in the political realm, and so I can go to the market and beat the, the uh, grocer. I, I didn't think that would okay. be the deal. I mean, it's certainly <laughs> violence in the sense of a totalitarian society is certainly one possibility, but there's also... But there's a whole long no, list she, of things that are wrong with this. No, no, but she's, with the social, she, she so, will but. eventually say that when we get to the Middle Ages and you have the emerging of a merchant class that wants to protect its private property so that it can create more wealth, it turns to the state to enforce contracts through force and violence. Violence becomes part of the state when it's understood as governing the social realm. Well, and then and actually, feudal lords are, are, kingdom, right? feudal lords are still restricted. She's trying to draw a contrast between a head of the household and a feudal lord, and the feudal lord is still bound by the law. Okay. Let's look to where it is. I think it's chapter 6. Page 30. The realm of the polis, on the contrary, was the sphere of freedom, mm -hmm. and if there was a relationship between these two spheres, it was a matter, of course, that the mastering of the necessities of life in the household was the condition for freedom under the polis. Under no circumstances could politics be the only a means to protect society, whether that's a society of the faithful, as in the Middle Ages, or a society of property owners, as in Locke, or a society relentlessly engaged in a process of acquisition, as in Hobbes, or a society of producers, as in Marx, or a society of job holders, as in our own society, or a society of laborers, as in a socialist and communist countries. In all these cases, it is the freedom, and in some instances so-called freedom of society, which requires and justifies the restraint of political authority. Freedom is located in the realm of the social, and force or violence becomes the monopoly of the government. Cha-ching. Um, <laughs> that's all I meant. <laughs> I've got a note about page 33 a little after that the rising of economic activities to the public realm means that political action political speech become the superstructure over social interests so she says this is an insight that usually is attributed to Marx that really the political parties say arguing it's just classes but that's right in there that's, that's not a matter of that moment of development of classes in particular that's just right there as soon as you have the social become something that is primarily there to protect the economic, which happens as soon as you get a mass society, seemingly, that this kind of egalitarianism that she was shooting for seems like, at least, that it only works in small little, like the polis, small little units. So once you get a mass society, is it just inherent? Like, it seems to me that the, the you know, part of what was objectionable about, about the social is not just that everything becomes economic, but just think of it in terms of sort of small town conformism and morality being enforced in a way that if there was truly respect for individuals or it was individuals meeting at a polis and nobody's got the monopoly on moral 
correctness. You could have a plurality, that's kind of plurality she wants, that the leveling doesn't necessarily require a mass. You could have a, a pretty small group, but the, the point is it's kind of like a family. Like a family, you know, at least traditionally, they kind of had one view. Maybe the woman or the kids didn't have any views at all. But if they had a view, they would just kind of parrot what the head of the household says. The only difference with a slightly larger group is that you actually stop needing a tyrant or someone. I mean, you could have Mussolini, like she describes tyrannies as the worst kind of this. You have Mussolini or somebody like that parroting a thing and then everybody, you know, is just locked in step with that. They have the same view. There's not a multiplicity of voices interacting in any meaningful political way, even if they all get to vote for their one candidate or something. Yeah, well, that's doing violence to one of human conditions, that plurality, one of the most important defining conditions of us. She calls it a condition of action. The reason why a plurality is a condition of action, I mean, she's thinking about the sense in which action is the true expression of individuality. It's actually spontaneous, yes. and it, it requires individuals. It requires that human beings not just be conformist slaves to the, to the social whose behaviors are predictably routine because of this you know, tyranny of the, of the masses. So. Right, right. So it doesn't have to be a tyrant anymore that after, even right. in a small group, it could not be an actual leader, but it's a leader of no one. That bureaucracy becomes the, the leader. Yeah. So you could even have an ostensibly democratic, egalitarian system in which still the bad thing about society in the, homogen yeah. the homogeneity that that... So, so this, is chapter, is this is chapter six, where, or, or section six we're talking about. <laughs> and the primary problem with the social is just it deprives us of this public realm, which is what we need to be fully human, this realm of action. And then she goes into this thing about the emergence of the intimate. Rousseau is the first theorist of the intimate as a sort of rebellion, romantic rebellion against the social and the conformism that comes along with the social. And then gets, she gets into this idea that conformity basically excludes the possibility of action. And the equality that's predicated on that is not this equality of peers that you get in the polis. It's not actually equality of these free individuals. So the intimate was an advance in the private realm. You didn't have the intimate in the ancient Greek tyranny of the family. But it's not just that you know, you've got this, this Greek condition and then the intimate comes out in that. It's that the social came out in reaction and sort of crushed the polis model. And then in reaction, you know, it's, we got more dialectic going on. In reaction to that, you get the intimate. Yeah, it's, it's like the shrunken residue of the private <laughs> realm. It's what we're left with. Well, it, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Because remember, what I was just saying is the, the private realm starts as this place of violence. The intimate, you actually have an authentic encounter. It may be just with another person, with your spouse with your kid, but the intimate... In let's, yeah, let's give an example. What, what do we mean by the intimate? Let me, well, well, let me, let me tell you what she says. But, so on the theme of that the, that the development of society brings the private out into the open, right? So we don't want to talk about public space in the way that she defined it originally. As you develop society and the household gets drawn into the open, we'll just say things that were private before are no longer private. Right, the private household is no longer private, so we lose privacy. Like, like the production of stuff. I mean, we don't think of that as private, but that was something that was hidden away in the household. In yeah, Greece. and so you have this sort of development over time of this erosion of the private to the point where we get to Rousseau, and she says, what page? 38, bottom, the first articulate explorer and to an extent even theorist of intimacy was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He arrived at his discovery through a rebellion not against the oppression of the state, but against society's unbearable perversion of the human heart, its intrusion upon an innermost region in man, which until then had needed no special protection. The intimacy of the heart, unlike the private household, has no objective tangible place in the world, nor can society 
against which it protests and asserts itself be localized with the same certainty as the public space. So the intimate is, is your thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Yes. So, your so the, original, the original dividing line between public and private is... The four walls of my compound. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's the actual house. And then <laughs> that gets collapsed it. together, and then you get a new dividing line, and you're, you've retreated... Yeah, so true, what's, the truly, psyche. what's truly private is only what you hold inside. The psyche is opposed to the household. Yeah. Right. So that's oh, the but, sense in which the private realm shrinks. Yeah, but I mean, so here would be the idea of marrying for love versus marrying for economic stability. It's just there's two realms yeah. of the intimate we're talking about. One, you were talking a little more about the purely solitary, the vita complentative. Contemplative life. Yeah, the contemplative life, where you're really just by yourself, or even uh, there's even some sort of variations of that. You could be my thoughts are keeping me company if I'm a philosopher, but yet if I'm a truly religious person, then that's really wordless. That's standing before the eternal, and that's very lonely. It, it, you know, if you didn't have the God model there to fill that out, you would go absolutely insane if you had that. So you got that, and those are forms of the intimate. You, you know, it's the inner, it's the, the private is shrunk to what's in my head, but the intimate, obviously, as we were talking about, is, you know, the romance novel is love, is an encounter with another. You know, we got this, this model going back to Hegel and with Buber and folks like yeah. that, where... To be a it full could be self, an encounter with the other, but it's to be a full self. You only really need one other person. You at least need that. If you were just by yourself, alone on an island, you you know you're basically the same as an animal. You don't get a sense of self. You need somebody else looking at you to get an idea. And she says one of the things about political action here is that it's always somehow showing yourself. But Arendt, unlike these other folks, seems to think that that can't happen with just two people. That the intimate still is a little too much like that family unit before where everybody kind of has the same opinion, right? If you're a couple, yeah, you, you provide some objectivity to each other. You call each other on each other's bullshit. But th you still kind of become a unit or else it doesn't really work. And so it still doesn't provide the requisite fullness objectivity to give you a public world for you to be fully human. No, you can't be free. Yes, that's, yeah, that's the way she absolutely say. right. But I think all she's saying is that this is just a response to the shrinking of the private. It's an attempt to try to reclaim the private, but it's not really the private anymore. It's intimacy. That's all. I, I thought that was the main point of that that whole bit, right? It just there. it seems weird to well, say. They're trying to get to why, why intimacy isn't good enough. Why is that not? Yeah, because there's. I mean, I'm for, telling well, you because it's not what it's not the public. I mean, this well, is but, just, but see, here, here's one way to, that becomes a little bit confusing is is intimacy would require speech. One would hope. <laughs> Not all intimacy. <laughs> so, intimacy requires affirmative consent. <laughs> We're classy. <laughs> That's all I can say. So she characterizes the public and the political as being decisively about speech. And so this is the act of our plurality. She says early on, plurality is the condition of human action because we are all the same, that is human, in such a way that nobody is ever the same as anyone else who ever lived, lives, or will live. And so speech is such a, a sign of our plurality is, on the one hand, our speech presumes that kind of sameness, that I'm speaking to another person. But it's an act of us utterly individually. So it... Or else you wouldn't have to say anything. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so what's confusing about this analysis of, of having our freedom only in the political is why other acts of speech that are maybe intimate or private in the way we've been talking about, in the way she would analyze it, why those aren't free, why those aren't a sign of our freedom. What is it about? Is it just the issue of violence and authority within those relationships? Or the well, are they free from necessity? Are they, are they outside of the realm of things we need? And we so, need so, that kind of freedom for it to rise to the level of the, okay, the so speech, the fact, action, the fact that you need a spouse or something... 
So to be free from necessity means makes it. Well, I'm sorry to say that again. The fact that you need a spouse would make it part of necessity or something, you know, or you need someone to love in a different way yeah. than you need people in a community to have. So our human, our human, yeah, relationships are, are predicated on this, yeah, fulfilling a. So fulfilling the social need, but in, in the polis, it's not a matter of those to be free. Those interactions can't be predicated on, oh, I'm fulfilling my social need now. They're, they're free of that necessity. It's the idea of this human interaction that rises above that, rises above lust, pleasure of interaction, all of those things. There would be other kinds of intimate relationships, friendships, for instance, that would also, she would not admit them of being political in this way and freeing in the same way, I don't think. So I didn't quite read it that same way. I think the way I would characterize it in her language is to say that intimacy is the recognition of the behavioral pressures that society places on us. And that mm -hmm. the rebellion is to act in a way that we're being told not to or, or that not act in the way that we are being told. So insofar as society generates this, she actually, the term she uses is she, she says, a complete victory of society is characterized by a communistic fiction that is ruled by no one. This is what Mark was talking about earlier. And she actually references in this context Adam Smith's invisible hand. So it's a nice little twist talking about the invisible hand of the market emerging out of the actions of individual what actors. What does it say what the communistic fiction is? It could be anything. It's the idea that society has one interest exactly. and one goal. We have a common good. The commonwealth has a common goal, right? Which, strangely enough, comes out of partially out of Rousseau, too, right? The idea of a common good in, in this place. Yeah, well, no, but the, the point is when you believe that yeah, there's a yeah. common goal for society, then behaviors will be dictated. Your job is to marry this person at this social status. Your job is to be a laborer. You're a slave. You're a serf. You're a noble, right? And so what Rousseau and the Romantics are rebelling, what, the way I read it was is saying, recognizing that the stricture is in place and rebelling against that prescribed behavior, but that's still not free action in the sense of, because you're not among, in this community of equals sort of spontaneously generating this free action. You're basically just responding to what's been thrown at you in your trying to overcome it in some way or rebel against it. That's the way I interpreted it. So in 40, she says, the phenomenon of conformism is characteristic of the last stage of this modern development. It's related to communistic tendency. It is true that one man monarchical rule, which the ancients stated to be the organizational device of the household, is transformed in society. As we know it today, when the peak of the social order is no longer formed by the royal household of an absolute ruler into a kind of no-man rule. But this nobody, the assumed one interest of society as a whole in economics, as well as the assumed one opinion of polite society in the salon, does not cease to rule for having lost its personality. As we know, from the most social form of government, that is from bureaucracy, the rule by nobody is not necessarily no rule. It may indeed, under certain circumstances, even turn out to be one of the cruelest and most tyrannical versions. But I also thought of Rousseau in this section, in my liner notes, because of the social contract and the common good and the general will. And general right. right. So let's try to understand. She thinks she's condemning both capitalism and Marxism equally. That they both they both have the wrong starting point. They have the wrong conceptual framework. The same framework. wrong starting point. Yes, which is this society, which involves them being yeah. a common good. And she talks about companies. This sounds weird. Like the whole point of capitalism and competition among capitalism is that it's not like a family. That in a family, the individual siblings hopefully are not competing in that way and producing alternate. I made dinner. Well, I made dinner too. I prefer your dinner. Go throw that away. Hopefully they're not doing that. <laughs> But yet he wants to say that you, know, you used to have just all your slaves and they would do the farming for you and you don't need to trade with anybody outside. Getting these independent entities, 
companies, I mean, first of all, entering into a company itself. He says company comes from people who share bread or something like that. Is he talking about her? Yes, Arendt. I don't, I don't uh, remember, remember that. that. I'll, this I'll find a, the quote. This isn't an extra section. No, no, no. no. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's in a footnote somewhere. I'm oh, sure. is it? Okay. Ein Aristotelian Kai Hyperion. Page 35. <laughs> companies is men who eat one bread. The company actually became, you know, you only get the social when you get the breakdown in some ways of those traditional extended family units with the slaves and all that. And instead you get companies, you get guilds, you get all these things in the Middle Ages that really did have a family-like structure. The thing I'm having trouble understanding is then when you extend out from that to actual competition, it seems like the only common good there is we want to raise GDP or something. So that's, is that enough? To get no, the, she, I well, think she answers that towards no. the end. She talks about private property, and maybe yeah. we should hold off on that, maybe not jump into that right now. But we can. Well, one of the founding things of this book, it was supposed to be, you know, she'd just written Eichmann in Jerusalem. This was supposed to be about Marx, like when she kind of entered into this. Right. And it kind of became its own thing and is only tangentially about Marx, but it ends up being a deep critique of why you might think that, oh, the problem with the social taking over is just capitalism taking over and the conformity and the mass, you know, a lot of the things we've right. said about what that means sounds like an attack Usually, on capitalism. Yeah. But she's saying, no, to reject that, and elsewhere, in it, she says this about some other kinds of supposed revolutions. Even if you take a conceptual scheme and turn it upside down, like, now we're going to transvalue the values. Like, you're still keeping the conceptual scheme itself intact. Yeah. You're not actually undoing the mistake and so that's her, as clearly as I can get at this point, of her critique of Marx, which is not very clear. <laughs> okay. The critique of Marx mainly happens in the labor chapter. Okay. Yeah. But it does amount to what you said of saying that Marx, in trying to turn things upside down, is really doing exactly the same thing as Smith. In fact, she lumps Smith, Marx, Locke, all of them all in one place. She's as having great. basically the same... Yeah. The same you know, theoretical underpinning for the relationship of human beings to their labor and the relationship of us to our work. Yes. Yeah, so and, and they all make the same mistake. They come to different ends, but they all make the same mistake. Say a little more they, what they, that mistake is. They don't understand the relationship of what our freedom really is. In all their cases, they're thinking of freedom in terms of elevating labor as being our most central activity. And so that in all cases, we become only laborers, whether it be Marx or whether it be Smith. And that that is not a proper understanding of our human condition, because in all those cases, we're slaves. We're slaves to our labor. And in order to be free, we have to be freely acting individuals. Yeah. So there's a, another way to kind of characterize this is that in the modern world, when society completely consumes the public space, so we no longer have public space in the sense where we have free people acting, and it's almost entirely consumed the private space, except for intimacy that we talked about, then what happens is you have this emergent property that starts to dictate behavioral norms. And what happens is not only that we as individuals in that lose our ability to act autonomously, the more of us there are, the more that norm gets defined statistically, and the more if you make films, seven-minute films on Super 8 and then transfer to digital so you can edit, the more you're a deviation from that norm. You are abnormal, right? And what's also important is that then government ceases to be necessary because there are no more choices to be made. There's only behavior and norms to be administered. So 
This ties into the Eichmann in Jerusalem because her whole criticism in Eichmann in Jerusalem was about the bureaucratic nature. How Eichmann wasn't some sort of evil person in the sense of some transcendent evil. He was a bureaucrat. And I think if you want to find a connection in this book to that, it's the fact that politics gets reduced to administration of normal behavior with the power of the sword, so to speak. And so that's the real danger. And what that normal is, it could be your laborer, it could be, you know, all those different, it could, you could be Lockean, you could be Marxian, you could be any of these things. They all have the same symptom, which is they are dictating what you should be, and then it's being enforced, uh, and you no longer have freedom in the true sense of the word. Well, she talks about, so on page 46, that's where she talks about the rise of the social, turning everyone into basically laborers. And job holders. And job holders. Yep. And then she goes into this section where she basically talks about labor like it's this cancer, which is a weird way to think of it because it's life itself. So, for instance, it's life become cancerous and overgrowing everything else. So, let's see. It was as though the growth element inherent in all organic life had completely overcome and overgrown the processes of decay by which organic life is checked and balanced in nature's household. The social realm, where the life process has established its own public domain, has let loose an unnatural growth, so to speak, of the natural. And it is against this growth, not merely against society, but against the constantly growing social realm, that the private and intimate, on the one hand, and the political, on the other, have proved incapable of defending themselves. So, you know, I think in both cases, with both capitalism and communism, both of them are what she calls emancipations of labor in this sense. And that emancipation allows it to run roughshod yep. over both the public and private spheres. And she points to, in the next paragraph to the developments in the technology of labor, like the vision of labor yeah. and the mechanization of labor processes, which actually accelerate this whole thing. The division of labor she thinks of as a, once you take labor out of the household, making labor a public thing, the division of labor is inevitable once it becomes a public thing as opposed to a household. And one of the things she points to, she talks about, this is part of her historical examples, that apparently in medieval time, in looking at how much time people spent working, that during the Industrial Revolution and the modern era, people spent way more time of their day laboring than they ever did before, even among slaves, that the push of production in that respect was historically extreme. Yeah. So Marx's emphasis on labor as a path, I suppose, to authenticity, that's the objection. Right. right. It's forgetting that labor is supposed to be laborious. By definition, that's what the word is, that it is toil, <laughs> and why you should then say, this is my identity is to be a laborer or something, that's confusing that really, if you want to have that kind of affection for labor, put it toward work instead, actually producing something that is meant to last. And you could see why there would be a disillusionment. To, to, fair, to be fair, Marx was actually thinking of being freed up to work as opposed to simply labor. being alienated. Making labor. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm not sure what, how she would respond to that. Right. What well, else do we want to say about this difference between labor and work? I mean, some of it is just a matter of what attitude you have toward what you're doing. It's not even necessarily what you're doing. That even an artist right now, because we're less pretentious, we don't feel like, I'm creating a work for the ages. I, you know, that's just, no, everything crumbles to dust. Come on. Uh, like, that's one of the things that well, Christianity added to the soup, according no, to her. Is that is this, this bashing it down to the, the notion of immortality but, that was in ancient Greece. But there should be durability. Yeah. yeah. 
that's a characteristic of work. Yeah, a characteristic of so work. So you don't is think that the performance artists are, are producing a work? Not according to not, not according, not according to what she's talking about. It's not. It's Sorry, not, performance it's not artists. It's not a work. <laughs> it's merely a we, labor. We appreciate your labor. <laughs> we appreciate your labor. Yeah, I mean I think we have to broaden the notion of work, right? To get back to that idea that work is something that produces something of permanence. All that has to do is mean it, it outlasts you, right, in a certain sense. But the real issue but with... But it can't strive to immortality in the way that deeds can. Or no, but, but, no, but, but it's the beginning of, of that. It's, it, like, it's, it's, like the yeah, it's, it's, it's the transition from mere labor to the mm -hmm. striving for immortality. Well, it's part of the world of things that comes up between and amongst us as a plurality. We have to have a world of things that we create, and then those condition us, and we have deeds and actions which can be immortal. Or we can live a contemplative life, and we can tack onto the eternal... Right. I think about the good. I think about the good. But the real issue, I think the really, really oppressive issue about making society about labor, when we say we are a society of laborers, is you're basically saying the whole purpose of life is survival, nothing more. If all you're focused on is labor, you're basically saying the only reason we exist is to survive because you're taking yeah. out not just works of permanence and deeds and actions and immoral, but even anything else, anything creative at all. And that's, that's what's really oppressive about it. Your life is all about necessity. Your life is all about necessity. Which is not free. No. So what does that mean? I mean, you can, you know, somebody who's laboring in a job that feels like labor, you can definitely see how this could be dehumanizing. She definitely wants to equally condemn people who are, you know, a high-level business person spending all of the day doing this, that they're still ultimately doing this to make a living. Whereas I would feel, especially someone who's an entrepreneur, the way they describe it, is that they're finding needs that need to be met and they're coming up with innovative ways to do it and infusing capital here and there and they're, you know, that they're living some kind of meaningful life. She wants to say that that's, no, that that's, they're, they're misinterpreting. They're not actually creating works. They're, they're creating consumables in some way. I, well, I don't feel like she engaged that kind of activity very much in here. I mean, the picture of the laborer, of, of even of business and stuff, to me was one that sounded like very Marxian or Smithian in it's a whole bunch of nameless, faceless people engaging in this activity. It didn't sound as much like she was engaging this notion of an entrepreneur that would be making a business and building a work like that. I think I can answer Marx. I can give an account anyway okay. from a book. She discusses the notion of wealth versus property and how originally the idea of owning property was so you could generate wealth, but wealth is to be consumed. So that's the original Greek polis, right? They're not capitalists. They're not trying to produce more and more and more and grow, grow. They're trying to sustain their household so they can have freedom to go have ship battles, right, with the Spartans or whoever. <laughs> Build a trireme. Build a trireme. <laughs> The first phase of capitalism, where you have the first mercantile class and all that, and they say, we want to secure our property. We want the government to protect us and secure our property so that we can generate wealth, with the idea still that there will be consumption. When property is designed to generate the acquisition of more property, that's when capital capital's purpose is to beget capital, not wealth to be consumed. And that's so these people who are entrepreneurs and they're like, hey, you know, I'm going to go on Shark Tank and I'm going to get funding to, you know, have this bed that kids can't roll out of because the sheets tuck in or whatever it is, <laughs> right? On the one hand, they're trying to get wealth that they can consume because everybody wants to drive a Lexus or whatever. But I think on the other hand, they're trying to generate capital. Like that's the whole system. It's just beget capital, begets capital, begets capital. 
with no purpose or end inside. And to that extent, they're caught in the same matrix, I think, as the labor. But again, one of the common things is just the way in which all of these items become fungible one into the other. So money well, she, is the problem She here, talks right? about the social evaporation of the tangible in this context, right? Yeah, everything becomes the same in some way. So it loses its integrity. It becomes the same because it becomes a question of what its monetary value is. She mentions yeah, at one point exactly. that admiration has no value anymore unless it can be turned into dollars. It used to be that, that reputation, reputation, shame were things that were important. You cared about your reputation, and nowadays it doesn't matter. It's just how well, can you turn it into money. Yeah. Again, though, I think our objection is the sense in which we lose the sense of public and private through this because this evaporation of the tangible deprives the world of what she calls its worldly character and we need that this is section nine page 70 so she's just gotten done talking about fungibility and even property being seen as something consumable and there are only 10 um, sections here we're in the home stretch just so, you know. <laughs> so let's see Closely connected with this social evaporation of the tangible was the most revolutionary modern contribution to the concept of property, according to which property was not a fixed and firmly located part of the world, acquired by its owner in one way or another, but, on the contrary, had its source in man himself, in his possession of a body, and his indisputable ownership of the strength of his body, which Marx called labor power. So I haven't really helped us there. <laughs> Here it is, sorry. Thus modern property lost its worldly character and was located in the person himself, that is, in what an individual could lose only along with his life. So it's no longer a founding element of the public realm. It's now it's in the same way that the private is shrunken into the intimate the property. Yeah, is it's shrunken yeah. into the individual in some sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That he talked originally about the property of the you know that was a requisite to, to becoming a participating member of the polis was your physical house. And in fact, if you got kicked out of the city state. It would burn down the house. It wouldn't just somebody wouldn't just take it. But that's how closely it was. Like that house is that family, and that provided a solidity. It provided you with a location, an emplacement in the society, physically as well as socially. And the fact that we've lost that, she seems to think you know, things are just becoming less real. That wealth is, yeah. you know, money is is no. We should talk about because we kind of skipped this. This is section seven. This idea of, of the property. Reality is founded on the public. We, yes. you know, we lose reality in itself to some extent by losing the public. So that actually is a different way of putting, you know, what's, why isn't the intimate, why isn't my encounter with one person enough? Is that enough to establish reality? You know, if you're in an intimate relationship, exactly how single-minded the two of you been connected hopefully can be and how crazy you could meet a couple and you could talk to them and who are these people? They are out of their freaking mind. Like, they need a third person. They need a marriage counselor. A, they need somebody in the public to come in. There's a quotation which direct, <laughs> directly addresses this. Uh, compared with the reality which comes from being seen and heard. So part of this idea of the public is doing things in front of other people, being recognized. So compared with the reality which comes from being seen and heard, even the greatest forces of intimate life, the passions of the heart, the thoughts of the mind, the delights of the senses, lead an uncertain, shadowy kind of existence unless and until they are transformed, deprivatized, and de-individualized, as it were, into a shape to fit them for public appearance, which is to say in artistic works. And that's what really one of the functions of art here is to deprivatize these passions in an attempt to bring back the real. But that doesn't work, really. I mean, it, it approaches it, but it doesn't work. Well, so. she, okay, so she ups the ante a little bit at the end, on the bottom of 57. Only where things can be seen by many in a variety of aspects without changing their identity so that those who are gathered around them 
No, they see sameness in utter diversity can worldly reality truly and reliably appear. So this is where our characteristic of us being plural comes to the fore. And that is the ground for things being real. Yeah, so she's she's so, so there is no there. Re- so yeah. there is no reality for being a world in Heidegger's sense. We're not just talking about the planet that happens to exist, but the human world. With well, meanings. Well, she's shifted there from talking about the need to be seen and heard to yes. the need for a external object to which we give our joint attention. Yes. So this is page seventy-one. Reality is not guaranteed primarily by our common nature. It's guaranteed by having the same object. On page fifty-eight. So, if the sameness of this object can no longer be discerned, no common nature of men, at least not of all the unnatural conformism of a mass society, can prevent the destruction of the common world. And this is where she gets into this idea of needing all these diverse perspectives to sort of create that world or to maintain that world. It raises this interesting idea in a polis of having a conflict in which you all got together and decided to deny the existence of something with respect to one other person. So it may be like they're You've decided that say, doesn't say exist Sorry, anymore. Yes, all so we just we just don't talk about him at all anymore. I think uh, there was a Twilight Zone. <laughs> there is a Twilight Zone wait, about where wait, the people just stop talking about somebody and he kind of disappears or something like that. Oh, I yeah. See, I see. Just the function of the common ascent in the sense of recognition. She doesn't use that word, but that the things held in common are the things that are. This is yeah, yeah. This is thematic to ancient philosophy. The idea of the having the things in common are this important ground, and we lose that. This spoke to me in kind of a different way. This is like one of my favorite parts of the book. So, to reiterate, just everything that appears out in the open is seen and heard by everyone. Reality individually experienced is fully realized only when it's deprivatized. Like. The first thing that came to my mind, of course, was Facebook, right? Like, I didn't have a meal until I'd taken a picture of it and made sure that you guys know how pretty it was and where I'm at and all that sort of thing. And it's symptomatic that we, in the same way that we lost the private sphere of the household, where there was no sharing. What happened in the household was strictly in the household, and it's not like people went over to each other's houses and that sort of, that's the idea, is that this complete loss of privacy also means that whatever you experience in your inner life is meaningless until you share it with somebody else. Like, we don't even have a way of valuing our own experience. But there's a limit to that. And she mentions specifically, she says it's a testimony that there's a barrier because physical pain is the one thing that you experience in your body that you cannot share with the public. You can't post it anywhere. You can't tweet it. And, you know, it's that whole, what is it, Wittgenstein? Can you feel this pain? Right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I absolutely, absolutely love that section because it just so clearly, I think, sells the idea a little bit. For me, like it's such a visceral kind of description of it, as opposed to the common constituting, you know, I guess the sense is if we had a true plurality where we were sharing that we would also regain our interiority or at least the value of our interiority. It just seems to go pretty far with it, you know. So essential to the public is that there's always a new person can come along. So as, even if we've made yeah. as a group, we've decided that Seth doesn't exist and we're not going to pay attention to him anymore, then the little Someone kid comes along and says, look, there's Seth. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and ruins it. An entirely new action. That's right. <laughs> Which implies a degree of openness to society that doesn't seem like it was in the polis. You don't just get constant new influx of people with their houses. Well, she does start the book off by saying, you know, we're all the same and that we're all unique and, you know, we're all snowflakes. And she doesn't talk about gender or race impacting your snowflakeness or ability to be snowflaked. Another aspect that it reminded me of 
was the activity of experimental science. The activity of common ascension, that you would do an experiment that everybody can see before them, and that that has a way of presupposing the authority of each individual freely acting, and that it becomes a real and true account insofar as anybody can reproduce it, anybody can see it happening, as opposed to something that was born out of just the authority that I said the way it was. You know, the king says, well, I can float off the ground or something. That you have to demonstrate it. It has to be a public act. And it becomes real in being that public act. And that's one of the founding tenets of modern science, modern experimental science. And the reason that I found that interesting is the extent to which the modern condition, modern science, has this leveling effect that she's going to criticize in the end. But the, well, I mean, the irony of... Yeah. Because it seems to be... It seems to be We're getting at the question of, you know, what kinds of things do we need to have in common, you know... In order to be political. Not... It would be free stuff for so, you know, right. posting so on Facebook. And she even talks about, for instance, it could be in the case of the conformism that you all have the same opinion, but that's not really well, having something that you can having something about. in common. You know, so it may also happen under the conditions of mass society or mass hysteria, where we see all people suddenly behave as though they were members of one family, each multiplying and prolonging the perspective of his neighbor. In both instances, men have become entirely private. So things that seem on the face of it public, like posting to Facebook or belonging to political communities in which everyone agrees with you, going to the same websites, reading the same sort of political tirades that agree with you, that in a way is also a way of retreating to one's private spirits. It's actually isolating. It's not a way of being in a community with others. Yeah, so. she says even if you infinitely replicate the same thing, that doesn't make it common, right? But the irony of your example... And you know me, I'm always ready to beat down science, is that replication doesn't happen. I mean, we just saw the slew of reports about how 60% of research is never replicated, and nothing ever gets demonstrated. It's just published, and people don't even engage with it. They just let it hang out there, and then somebody picks it up and reports on it. So, again, not talking about in the ideal state, I'm saying symptomatic of the society where individuals are not engaged, where we don't have a common goal, where we're not expressing diversity about commonality, where we're not you know, taking all these things seriously. That's a perfect example of how that manifests itself in that supposedly more pristine or regulated yeah, but it, realm. But the larger question, I mean, is does that count as one of the things we have in common, even though it's a good example? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't does joint attention to a novel, for instance, count as having a thing in common? It's unclear to me what counts for her as these world-founding objects and what doesn't. And what the relationship to freedom is. I mean, is it that you speak as a free human being about this thing that's held in common? And what's the sign that you're being free in that, right? Is it that you disagree or is that you agree or the practical working out of it doesn't how it, you can actually tell that it's happening or not. Because one of the conditions of society here is it seems right, it's easy to recognize the kind of leveling thing that she's talking about, but it's not clear to me that how you would see it being different, how is the polis going to be manifestly different if I walk into it? If you do some great deeds and some, have some great words, you're producing an effect there. But how would I distinguish that from doing such a thing in, in society? That just because in society I would just never right. try to do great deeds? So, there so would be last, not be part of my discussion? These, these last two comments sound, it's easy to, to read 
critiques you like this. You try to do great works. Sorry. Right. Let me just to read high-level critiques like this as kind of snobbish and esoteric, like, you're doing it wrong. You have false consciousness. And you're, you, know, you might think that you have solidarity with your friends on Facebook, but you're doing it wrong. That's not real solidarity. Like, but she says <laughs> things that make it seem like she's actually reacting to visible psychological problems in society. So loneliness being, I mean, one of them. The, the bottom good. 58, top of 59. Under modern circumstances, this deprivation of objective relationships to others and of a reality guaranteed through them has become the mass phenomenon of loneliness, where it has assumed its most extreme and most anti-human form. The reason for this extremity is that mass society not only destroys the public realm, but the private as well, deprives men not only of their place in the world, but of their private home, where they once felt sheltered against the world, and where, at any rate, even those excluded from the world could find a substitute in the warmth of the hearth and the limited reality of family life. She definitely thinks if you're in the public too much, you become shallow. If you think everything I have to do has to be posted on Facebook, it's not really real until I post it on Facebook. Well, you need the private to retreat into. To, it's without, yeah, it's to think. The, the public becomes shallow without the private counterbalancing. It's an interesting section because it's, you know, we, we thought it was just the decimation of the, the public realm initially that, you know, was the problem. But now it's this, she's spelling out this, the, the ways in which. The well, yeah, because there are two sides of the same coin. So if you get rid of one, you're really obliterating the other. Right. I'm not, I can say that out loud, but I'm not sure I completely understand that. And does anybody have any other insights from the text or from your interpretation of this that made that actually make sense? That the impoverishment of the private... Of the public of the, means the impoverishment of the private. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say it in the other order, but that's what I was saying. <laughs> well, it's really just the collapsing of the distinction between the two, right? It's, it's, I mean, the, the sense in which both are damaged is the sense in which they merge. Right? That's what society is. It's that merging of public doesn't she emphasize the way that society is really the private overtaking the public? And it becomes public-like in that it's amongst many people, but it really is a symptom of the private. That is labor overtaking yeah. all aspects of public life. There's an apparent symmetry between the two things overtaking one another, but it really is the private overcoming the public, the, the disappearance of the public in the face of the private, you know, the idea of rule being monarchy-based or, or household-based, the prevalence of economics as the way in which we understand our relationships between one another, the leveling of statistics to define who we are so that everything that in which she has this great sentence that says identity is not about normative behaviors, identity is about exceptional behaviors. And we've been somehow fooled or cowed into the idea that what is normal and normative is where the source of our identity is. And she wants to say that's absolutely not true. It's actually our exceptional behaviors. I'm trying to put some of this concretely into like right. what makes a good office environment or a bad office environment. <laughs> if you're, no cubes. You know, well, <laughs> you're working alongside the people. You have, you, know, you have your coffee breaks together or whatever, but you're basically, you know, you could see that that's, a prime example where the loneliness that she talks about like would be rampant. However, maybe if you had a different management strategy and you let all your employees innovate and put together their ideas and they aren't just doing the same thing like call center employees in neighboring cubes, but that they're working together on a project to make something, to develop the software or whatever, 
and not just being code monkeys doing what they're told. Rand is rolling over in a grave right now. So we're talking, about, <laughs> talking about bureaucratic and administrative steps too. Yeah, and your office environment or you're also rent friendly. I just I keep, I keep I keep trying to think how the you know somebody who's really in favor of entrepreneurial capitalism and finding meaning through. Doing something that is of value to others. I've been listening to a lot of econ talk lately. So they, that's the way that Russ Roberts on that talks all, all the time. That Why would you feel that something is meaningful? It would be retreating into your private, the privative privacy to just, I'm just going to stay home. And even if I'm doing art just for me or doing you know something that's just for me, that that doesn't have, it's not going to be as meaningful as if you're actually putting something out in the world that is creating something, creating value, which then if you're an optimist about capitalism, you think, probably you, you could get money for if, if you're creating something that's really a value to somebody else that they're going to buy it from you. So from there, it's just, you know, it becomes a matter of, yeah, you can start thinking about engineering of how can we give this thrill that the capitalist has in doing these entrepreneurial activities to spread this out more widely so more people, you know, that's why it's, it's you're trying to make love your non, job. Non-elitist. Love your job. elitist it's, uh, work. It's, it's, yeah, it doesn't become, like I always think that in order to really love your job, you'd have to quit your job because uh, most jobs do not really admit of being loved. But no, no, no. We just need better management techniques. We need better uh, okay. attitudes of individuals. Manage your way to freedom. Own your own. <laughs> Manage your way to the polis. So, I'll let me, force you to be free. Let me say this. We probably should, we probably should start wrapping up a little we bit should. here. So, you know, Mark, just in response to that last point, the word value is painfully overused in today's discourse, particularly in the realm, and entrepreneurs trying to identify market opportunities and customer needs, and then we're going to create a solution right, that value. generate to enhance value and generate value. You create the final solution. And it's like, you can, <laughs> you can, uh, this is the kind of shit we have to put that, up with. That, that, um, would have, that would have been edited out. <laughs> um, but you know what? You could be a social, you could create a social work entrepreneurial solution that had no capital production goals as its end, right? You see somebody like Jonathan Sachs. He's got all the money in the world, right? So what's he, he's going to go fix Africa. So it's not about money for him. It's about something else. I don't know what it's about, but the point is that whole model of entrepreneurial value creation, when you take away the element of capital production, still doesn't seem to speak to... Yeah. It, it still doesn't answer the, the, the question. So there's a couple of things. I just this is we usually do summations or winding up. This will be this will be mine, right? So I think there's a sense in which, as a solution to this problem of society, if we truly saw each other as equal participants and we recognized each other's diversity and welcomed it and empowered that and agreed on these things in common. I think when I was reading that section on things in common, I was thinking in terms of political discourse. So right now we have at least two extremes in our political system that can't even agree on what the facts are. They're no longer talking about same. Whatever their differences are, there's not even a discourse about the same. And there's a sense in which that's symptomatic of something that's radically, radically broken in the way our world is. So if we were able to say, we're going to agree that we're talking about X, I'm not you, you're not me, but we're both valid and we both have you know, some legitimacy and all that stuff, that would be the first baby steps towards trying to recover some sense of free action. Another thing would be to start recognizing the importance of privacy and not in a romantic sense where we have to go off into nature to get away from everything, but truly take a look at how, as we broadcast over the internet 
and our phones. I mean, have you noticed recently, like when you're just, my friend said he drove by a car dealership and like the next thing he knew on Google, the next time his browser came up, there was an advertisement. He wasn't even looking for a car. He just drove by it. And all of a sudden there's like, you know, I mean, we have to start taking those things seriously. Like not just because it's an invasion of privacy, but because it's a true erosion of your own ability to have, you know, your own private sphere in a certain sense, which is, as we say, critical. But the one thing, and I love this book. In fact, I'm going to read the rest of it eventually. I say that about Phenomenology of we'll Spirit, too. We'll just do another too. podcast on it. <laughs> Is that it's kind of, she doesn't have a positive prescription for what, I guess we're supposed to self-determine what would be fulfilling or what would be free action for us. There's kind of something missing about the creative aspect. There's of, a lack of concrete examples. <laughs> <laughs> well, I explored the rest of the book in search of those. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no, there's plenty. So for instance, of, even legislation turns out not to be action. It's a making. It's a poesis. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, okay. And the, I guess the other thing is we apparently should go read Proudhon, because she quotes him about 75 times in this first section. Proudhon. Proudhon. I don't speak French. <laughs> anyway, so my Jean Shallot, right? Um, thumbs up. I definitely think you should definitely read this. I mean, it's fascinating and has a lot of really interesting ideas at work. There's a certain sense in which we can't validate the genealogy aspect of it. We don't know, you know, how true or just because Aristotle says things were this way doesn't mean the Greek society was actually that way. It's one fragment of Heraclitus. <laughs> justification for the law being a barrier between the, yeah. One point I'm not sure if we've completely made is by sketching out more about the Vita Activa, she wants to say that the contemplative life, it's not that she wants to turn it upside down and say that actually these active things are the only way, I mean, it's true, the only way to be fully human is to be engaged politically in this way, but still, the contemplative life is a part of it, is a you know, part of the private sphere that needs to be nurtured as well. So she wants to just get rid of this competition between the two of them. They're both good. One part that we didn't really talk about so much here, it's in section 10, and then she mentions it earlier, but is the bashing that she has about medieval Christianity and Christianity in general. And in section 10, she emphasizes the contradictions involved in in goodness that you think that goodness becomes like one of the most private things because you know if you read augustine i mean he just drives himself crazy about like well i'm, I'm trying to be noble and good but then when i realize i'm noble and good i feel pride about it so much <laughs> so the way red puts it is you know a good deed in fact needs to be forgotten as soon as it is it's done so yeah. like Pursuing goodness well, you, in this way. If you way do it in public, inner... yeah, it could be that you're doing it for praise, but then yes. you can't even acknowledge it to yourself. Yes. That's the thing. It has to, yeah. Your right hand cannot know what your left yeah. hand is doing. For it to be good. And then so she concludes, no one can really be, really be good. So. Yeah, so, so you, might, you might have thought that the solution to all this shallowness in the world, society taking over, is to kind of take the platonic way and stand before the eternal, the wordless, but that would be very lonely, she thinks. That's not enough. It's well, she says it's solitary, but at least you get yourself as company. In the case of doing good, right? <laughs> for being in the a case of doing, no, being like, a philosopher, you do. right? Yeah, no, no, as a philosopher, not. in the case of doing good deeds, even though you're among people, you're the most isolated because good deeds actually aren't good company. Yeah, and you can't you can't even speak to yourself about them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because you have to forget. Can't them. speak to others about them. Can't. So that seems speak like to yourself. So it's this a little bit of when a, you get rid of the speech element that you get total isolation. Yeah, it seems a little bit of a, a gross caricature. <laughs> to my part, but I, I enjoyed the dig. I enjoyed her, her debt to Nietzsche there. Arendt doesn't like social justice. She doesn't like goodness. <laughs>
And uh, yeah, I agree with Seth. I thought this was one of the most fun readings that we've done in a while. She's known as someone, you know, she was a student of Heidegger and Jaspers, and that she would take a lot of the ideas, at least that were descended from Heidegger, but actually talk about them concretely enough that you know what she's talking about. And that's awesome, that if this is what openness and the clearing of being amounts to is, is having productive political encounters and an intimacy and an inner life and all that stuff. And that's what having a self and being authentic is about. That, that makes quite a lot of sense to me. It has a great virtue of being utterly readable. I have to admit, I, I'm still a little confused about what the sure. political is. It's because when I, when I said, for instance, she doesn't like social justice, I read somewhere that at some event, someone asked her about, well, what about, this is one of the big critiques of the book, what about distributive justice? What about social justice? And she said, those things are not political problems. They don't fall within the realm of politics. And political is not about necessity. So who, yes. you know, making sure the, the poor are fed and, and all those sorts of things don't rise to the level of the political for her. And, and it remains, you know, because of the lack of examples, it, what the political is exactly does remain unclear. Well, it, it would seem sort of some of the most salient political challenges over the past 2,000 years have been about the status of individuals who were relegated to the household in her way of talking about it. So being a slave, being a serf, status of women, all of those things which we would normally think of as political problems, it's not clear that she thinks of them as political problems. Now, maybe she would, you know, she would agree that you have to... They are necessary that, conditions of the political, in fact. Well, yeah. <laughs> at least in what we read, and it's not clear how... She's talking about what the human condition is, but how to diagnose what we would do about making a more just society or something like that. That would be part of the conversation, the poll was? Yes, yes. The goal yep. is the conversation. Yep. And once you have the conversation, you can work out that stuff. And I'm not going to, you know, she's not going to just tell you, prejudge that conversation. No. Yeah, but, is it, but it's interesting political. she's not a plurality. Yeah, but it's an interesting political <laughs> problem because if you have a polis of free men, right, but the real problem is slavery, who is acting as the voice of... Of the slaves, of the unrepresented? They can't be free without the slaves. That's the thing. I mean, it, it, well, be, But this is, this is where the kinds of political problems that challenges we've had in the past seem to not be alleviated by the political structure that she's pointing to, simply speaking, unless you set it up beforehand where everybody is free in a particular way and you generate a society that's free in that way. But having society generate itself into enhancing that freedom, I don't see the path exactly to that. Well, I, I, think, yeah, I, mean, I think that there are pretty dark... <laughs> elitist implications to this, which is that it really is a zero-sum game. There is no such thing as freedom and equality for everyone. The freedom of a few elites must be predicated upon well, that's the, the non-freedom of others. That, no, 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 no. That was historically, but that's one of the things she's talking about with the rise of technology and the change of the human condition and that we can be relieved from this. And it's not clear that so even... So properly free ourselves so from... So robot, robot slips. <laughs> Pretty much. But, but, and it's not clear that even... You know, is it have to be all or nothing? I have to be completely free from the cares of material. Even if things are being, I've got a, a government stipend, I still have to physically put the food in my mouth. Like there's, there's, there's stuff that you still have to do. There's labor. There's I think the stipend should be big enough that there are people to do that. For you me. could just eat the <laughs> So, it, but it just seems that it has to reach a critical mass so that labor does not take so much of your energy that you don't have time to 
do philosophy and engage in politics and this kind of stuff. And it seems yeah, a the, reasonable goal that we could aim at that for everybody. And we always are dissatisfied when we read a great critique that doesn't have a solution. Right? That's, <laughs> that's, a common, that's a common problem in philosophy. But she oh. starts off by saying, until we can talk about what's actually going on, right? she's going to speak this so that we have something that we can share in common and in our plurality come together as equals to solve. If she tried to give us a prescription, it would just be her. So this is a way to kick off the dialogue. She's the only free one. Well, all right, her, her last chapter modest. that we didn't read is Life as the Highest Good. So there you go. There's probably... There's the answer? Yeah, we don't even um, read No, but, just, but that's, that's, that's actually a critique of Life yes. as the Highest Good. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> She's a, it's actually saying... Life as necessity <laughs> is not the highest good. Yeah, skimmed yeah. away. It's, it's the victory of animal <laughs> labyrinths. Yeah. It's, a, it's the yeah. unfortunate condition of modern life. The that life is the highest good. of the natural. Mark. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad, Mark. <laughs> well, Speaking we, of bad, yes. I'm sure people <laughs> who are more familiar with this have been biting their tongues for a while. Justin, do you want to come be the mic carrier? First of all, I want to say this is really great because a lot of people are watching this. They can see that a group of people can sit down with a text and talk about it in a way that's serious, where discoveries are made, and you, you thoroughly enjoy yourselves doing it. I think that's excellent. Mm, my, my question. It's been a long time since I read this book, but I remember when I read it, I, I did love it. But I, it's been so long, I've forgotten a lot of it. But, you know, Marx makes a distinction between the sphere of freedom and the sphere of necessity. And the idea of sphere of freedom, that's where our politics are and philosophy and everything else. The sphere of necessity, there's really no way to take care of that. You just make it, well, the modern way is to say, okay, we'll have technology take care of it. We'll develop our technology. We only have to work a half hour a day, and the rest of the day we can do whatever we want, which is, I think, a great solution. But there's another one, too, and I'm wondering how Arendt figures into this one, and that is, you know, we had the, uh, the idea of the action and then work and then labor. If you have democratization of the workplace, remember for Marx, labor power includes the organization of the workers, and if that organization is a democratic one where the workplace is thoroughly democratized, then doesn't that convert labor and work in, 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 that's political, into uh, action. And would that be another solution besides a technological one? Although that would be an easier path, a technological one. But the idea is then that the work is meaningful because you're interacting with all the other people working there and making decisions together, and that's part of the work. It's not just something laid on to it because it's the organization of labor. I, I don't know if she says anything about that in there. I can't remember. Well, she does say, so if, if the government as a whole, you know, yes, we're, we're getting together as equals, but we're getting together as equals to figure out how we can best manage our resources. That sounds like a democratic workplace. That's still not authentic political action. You have to have already taken care of the providing for yourself and not be mere administrators. But we still have this question of like, well, what are you supposed to do? You're just supposed to debate philosophy? What, what Supposed to debate which other countries to invade? What if one? <laughs> because it's not. I mean, it is administration, but it's a democratic form of yeah. administration. Yeah. No, it, and that's it's the same as my their action. point about entrepreneurs. It seems like even these things that are for necessity, couldn't you do them in some way that seems meaningful? I think it's an empirical question. I think you, yeah, you know, go ask somebody. One of, the, one of the critiques that I read of this, what's wrong with socialism, is does the experience of this is the from the Fritz Bergman episode, does the experience of the, the factory worker get any better if that worker owns part of the factory? It's the same like horrible, demeaning thing that they're doing minute after minute, day after day. Why would that be any better by having a little sense of ownership about it? But maybe having the democratic structure means 
that nobody would have that horrible job anymore, that you'd actually raise working conditions. So it does seem like there's, you could make tangible progress. I think also, in the same way Wes pointed out, that her notion of the political is kind of hard to pin down. But no matter how you triangulate on it, it's very impoverished. It's a very narrow and strict. But she does explicitly say that the political was the realm of the creation of immortality, right, through speech and deeds. So when you say democratized environment, you think of democracy because you're thinking ancient Greece, but that wasn't a democracy in the sense of like our, we're all equals, we all have one vote. It was, okay, we can now all come together, but my goal is still to be better than these guys. Right? I want to be more articulate. I want to be a better general. I want to do something to make myself stand out. So I, I don't know if, if that would fit what the model you were talking about. So thank you for this. I love this book as well, and I really enjoyed hearing you talk about it. Just one quick comment to kind of save our performers over there. Arendt does says that the theater is the political place par excellence, I think, later on. So I think that she would say that something like performance is more political than something like labor or, or work. But I did have a question because it seems like there is a kind of separation between Vita Contemplativa and Vita Activa. In that sense, and I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on the kind of relationship between the two, because in the book, right, the point is to think what we are doing. So it seems like she's already kind of operating on a kind of relationship between those two kinds of life. But she would say that Vita Contempliva is thinking about thinking, and so she's thinking about action here, and so she's using that power to do this, but she's not thinking about thinking. And I think she almost says exactly. Well, that she phrase. says something about it's not that man is the rational animal, but the speaking animal. And it's yes. a kind of speech closely associated with action. Yes. So I think when we think what we're doing, it's that type of thinking. I think yeah. you put it very well, as opposed to, I think it's something different, I think, contemplative thinking. Yeah, she says actually explicitly about comparing those two forms of life, that the vita activa, the goal is immortality, whereas in the vita contempliva, the goal is the eternal. Mm -hmm. And yes. she says the vehicle for the first is logos, and the vehicle for the second is nous. The noose cannot be translated into speech. The eternal cannot be spoken. So I thought the way I read this was that she was saying this is something that the philosophers invented because they weren't in on the Vita Activa. It was like a resentment move. And she was like, they claimed that they were attached to the eternal and then they gave it a higher priority because they weren't engaged in the Vita Activa. And if you weren't engaged, they weren't fully human. They didn't have any power. That's kind of how I read that that section, but it was, it's very sort of patchy. But I've worried about, again, this relationship between philosophy and the political, that it seems if the political is not about group housekeeping and how are we going to alleviate poverty, then it seems entirely sensible that <laughs> it could get into an actual philosophical discussion. Like when we had Michael Sandel on, he didn't seem to have any sort of sharp distinction between doing philosophy and arguing about what we should do in the public realm. He, in fact, thought that what this conversation about democracy should be is like, what is justice? And the kind of thing that Socrates asked. Right. But the political is the realm of action. And the goal of action, you're trying to get people to act. You need to be persuasive. The truth doesn't matter. And that's why rhetoric is important in the political realm. You're, you're basically trying to convince a bunch of people to do something, go to war, not go to war, change a policy, enact a law. And that's a lot different than Plato's vision of what the, how the philosophical and the political would coincide. But if her recommendation is that we need to think about what we're doing, so in other words, in the political realm, we need to actually, you know, what goes into actually thinking whether we should have genetic engineering. It seems that bringing in stuff related to, well, what is a person and, and uh, you know, things like philosophical issues is entirely on point. That doing it right 
means actually you do care about truth. You do try to not just convince people, but convince people based on what you take to be the truth. Yeah. So your actual perspective of the multiple perspectives of the thing that make up reality. Uh, if the if the multiple perspectives were all just people egoistically putting themselves forward, those wouldn't be authentic perspectives on a shared reality. They have to be your reporting, your apprehension of the truth. I don't disagree with that, but there's a huge difference between saying you can be thoughtful and think about something and climbing out of the cave, right? I don't have to have had an experience of the good to be thoughtful about political matters. I mean, I think this is the bias of philosophy. You're taking the Platonic stance, which is to say, I'm doing something wholly other and special, and because I'm able to grasp this eternal thing, you guys should come to me for answers. So you, you have a narrow definition of what contemplation means, which I think I, is probably the traditional, you know. You know me, I'm just going by what I read. Yeah. Uh, it's not, that's <laughs> my um, name. And by the way. No, I'm just saying, it, you know. It, there should be a reformation of I think both of these points stand. Yes. It's just a matter of, of yes, if we but mean we're by supposed constant, to be responding sorry, to the yes. audience. And by the way, for the performance <laughs> artists, I came away with the same idea you did, that the truly political act is to do something completely one-off, useless, unreplicatable, and abnormal. <laughs> that's what you. That's what we should be doing. Not normative. Not normative. Not normative. Yes. So uh, I think it's kind of on this point that you were just talking about. So the task of thinking what we're doing, right? And, and I'm kind of thinking about post-structuralism and I'm thinking about psychoanalysis, right? And it's like inability to ever think fully what it is that you're doing, right? This kind of like wish to make everything present. And a, is it possible to actually fully whatever that would mean to really fully think what you're doing? Although it could be maybe like retrospective, like you can think about something that you're doing, but never actually pull it all present. And then the value of maybe not being able to think what you're doing, to not always have to live in that. Like, I don't know. What right. That I'm pretty sure be. she was not talking about it on an individual level. Well, I, yeah, I think, she, no, I, think, I think psychoanalysis is a good example because it's what we do when we're not thinking what we're doing is we're acting out. It's a failure of mentalization. And the goal for Freud was to take unconscious thoughts and make them conscious, associate them with affects. In a way, it's very similar to be able to, to say what we're doing or say what we're, we're feeling or that, those sort of things. So. But do you think that she was understanding the political as being thinking what you're doing? I thought she was understanding her own activity yeah. as thinking what you're doing, but the active life would be one of action and not necessarily. I mean, the, where thinking goes in there, it's not at all clear to me. Yeah, she has this very, very narrow notion of the political where there's some, a bunch of individuals that are like trying to decide, should we build this thing or not, right? The idea of creating policy, which does require evidence and knowledge and thought and theory and behavioral science and a variety of other things, and you get to a point to use like the economic language, right? You have imperfect knowledge, but you have to make a decision, right? That's the world of the political. At some point, you have to make a decision because you have to do something even if that's doing nothing. And so there's a place for thought and evidence and things like that in there, but there are strict boundaries on it. I took thinking as, again, associated with speech, mm -hmm. and, and again, where speech and action sort of go together and sure. are part of the political yeah. side. Sure. I would favor the side of thinking of what she's doing. Is. And, and speech and action going together is a matter of like them having the same Greek word. We didn't even talk about her whole goofy Heideggerian thing with words that a lot of her justification for these things is like, well, if you look at the ancient Greek word, you can see that private actually, you know, has look at the word you're private. It's like privative. It's bad. You know, that that's a lot. You have such contempt for this. <laughs> he hates, he hates the language stuff. I actually was going to ask you, Dylan, about some of the Greek things just to see if they were completely off base. You should ask were, Wes. He, he remembers more Greek than I do. 
Did we, but not did, right we now. did we address your question fully? Or? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's close. I mean, I mean, you said something about saying to being able to say what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that. You don't have the mic, so you didn't authentically actually <laughs> even say that. <laughs> <laughs> Marilyn, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so go, I don't know if she put this in a footnote or not, but I want to go back to her analysis of the household and the taking over of the social with the Roman world and, you know, the translation of, you know, political animal into the social animal. It seems to me there's an implicit critique of Stoicism in this. Even though Stoicism has its origins in the Greek language and it was still in the Hellenistic world and it became very popular in Rome and in the Roman world, and the most popular philosophy. And the Stoic ethics basically has this notion that you start from the household. You know, you start your ethics from your interaction with your family. You establish ethical relationships within the family, and you extend that outward. You extend it out to your neighbors, and then to the polis itself, and then to the cosmos itself. So this was the aim of the Stoic sage, is to, and this was the concept of oikosis. So in Greek, oikos, you know, is where we get the word economy, and it's, it basically means the house, the household. So if the Stoic sage is going from this familial relationship and extending that out as the model of ethics to interact with the polis, if the household itself is the area of violence, which it is for Eric, you know, where... You know, you have a head of a household, and you have the rest of the household, which is basically mute, doesn't have a voice of their own. I wonder if she's consciously or unconsciously looking at the stoicism that is behind this spread of the social and, and the concept of society. She doesn't say anything about Bravo! it. Bravo! <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Although it occurs to me, you know, stoicism is also about this relationship to necessity. And the stoic solution is to deny the relevance of necessity at all, right? The moral relevance, the relevance to happiness and flourishing. So for rent, you need the necessities to be taken care of by someone else to be free for the stoic. Your freedom is inner. The point you made, it didn't occur to me, but it seems like um, that's a good point. You know, I feel a little responsibility to the people in Australia and whoever have been watching this and posting on YouTube. Aaron, do we have any comments? No comments. Okay. You're all satisfied. Well, fine, live people. Any more? I thought I remember her talking about the, the Oikos piece. I can only find the stuff about the paterfamilias and the dominus, talking about the room. Yeah, See, I don't she doesn't remember mention, I don't remember mention about stuff either. She does also talk about translation of lex, uh, using the rule of law when you get into the Roman world and how that, but nothing specifically about the Stoics. She does mention something about the Stoics in there at some point in the book, she, but she's like, so, to say that I'm happy while a weight is crushing my chest is to be completely out of touch with what it means to be alive. Uh, anyway, my question, though, uh, going back to what you guys were talking about earlier with democracy and competition, how we, we might be reading democracy as we understand it onto here unfairly, I'm kind of wondering about that. She does say that political activity, when it happens, it only happens among equals. The uh, society is extremely unequal and it's predicated on slavery and all this stuff. But where political activity actually happens, it can only happen when there are equals and when they are citizens. So in that sense, I think that political activity is democratic. So what you're saying, I think, Mark, you're saying this, as far as competing against one another, is it really about trying to be the best then if we're all equals? She does talk a lot about excellence in there. So, I mean, when you're doing political action, you, don't want, you want to do something great. 
but I'm not necessarily sure it means you want to be better than the others. That seems like it might create a tension between actually being able to speak to each other and experience the same reality if you're trying to one-up them and sort of occupy this different plane of existence, maybe? It does make well, sense, says, but I'm pretty sure she says It's exactly in section that. five. <laughs> uh, she does say that, yeah, the, they're peers, but they have this agonistic, competitive relationship. That's a good word. I like that word. Agonistic. Agonistic. Yes. Um, yeah, she... Agonist. The, the, the reason why there's room for excellence in that struggle, so to speak, or contention amongst equals is that you have the opportunity of recognition of your excellence by the others. So when the equals, if you outperform in theory, they will go, I acknowledge that you did a better job. Thinking, I think in terms of the, you know, like a Homeric heroes, right? They, they're all great warriors, right? And they strive to distinguish themselves in battle. And I think that's kind of what's underlying that picture. But I do want to make a point of what we think of when we use the term equality and this equality that existed in the polis are two very different things. We have a society of unequals that have equal rights. They had a society of equals as they perceived it, or at least more so equals in that sense. It was not a rights issue. So when we think of equality, we, just, we aren't thinking that we're equals. We're thinking that we have certain equal protections under the law or maybe a certain dignity that comes through divinity or wherever that, that gives us all a certain something. Just a quick follow-up. So when action does happen, it's when something really excellent happens. Someone does something better than anyone else could possibly do it. I mean, what function does that action have really politically? Can you guys think of something? Like, what good is that doing? Is that just like Bill Gates is, you know, well, making windows and that's so awesome? Like, how is this different? Why is this Well, better? but he, he particularly is not participating in it. He just is doing it because he can, not participating in a democratic process or, you know, in a, in a deliberative process and convincing other people to... Yeah, what is the point? <laughs> we discussed the, the problem of not knowing exactly what action is, but she does, I think On Revolution is the book that she, she wrote after this one. On violence. She is on, on violence, on revolution. So, so she does say it somewhere that the paradigmatic political action is revolution. That can't be the only one. I think if you made a great speech that you convinced the polity to take a particular action, that would count. So it could be about like some sort of self-determination that they all decide on? We should no longer have the Redskins as our mascot. That's the thing. Well, we, we should put the flag up over there. I think every example we've come up with is terrible. Does anybody what about, know Sol any, what about Solon's stuff? speech? Right. What about that? Which one? Solon. Is that chopping the goat? Solon in or, per, or or um, Solomon? Okay. Or Pericles? Yeah. Solon. Solon and Pericles. Name dropping some Solon. Come on. Are we winding down here? Anybody else got, got some enlightenment to spread upon us? Your fellows? Aaron has a question. He's not what? just a, a man. But, oh, he, he's... No, it's my question. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> People out in the world are useless. Actually, they're, they're atemporal. They'll, they'll have not questions sure later. That or they don't know how to they're, do it on the not, technology that we have. <laughs> so in the, in the sort of the beginning part of the conversation, you were talking about the example of quantum mechanics, the example of scientists being unable to influence action because they've lost the power of speech because their words are too precise, let's say, or, or mathematical. Explain. According to her, the diagnosis is that they cannot say what they're doing. Yeah. They have know-how, but without being able to say what they're doing. Is that one extreme example where 
quantum mechanics is not very easily definable to the layman of, of what's going sure. on, but it's not really like day-to-day unless you're a conspiracy theorist who thinks that, you know, there's a particle accelerator is going to produce a black hole to kill everyone, that it's not really a danger. But you could go down the scale and say something like climate science or something where it's not, you know, I, I think people here are smart enough. They're not, but maybe not everyone in the political realm is, is intelligent enough to look at the evidence and to understand it where you need scientists now who are like popularizing it and trying to talk it down a little bit. Is that like allowing scientists to enter that realm a little bit more, let's say? I mean, an example that comes to my mind would be something like genetic engineering or GMOs or stuff. The criticism that you hear of GMOs partly amounts to we don't know what the consequence of this will be, what are the unintended consequences. And to me, that's a way of formulating her criticism of scientists as being the improper speakers for these inherently political things, is that they can't say what actually they're doing and what the implications are. Okay. Um, that's the kind of example that comes to mind. No, they can't say, not the fact that their speech isn't, it's not like you can't, I don't want to say dumb it down, but you can't, you know, it's very technical and not very, whatever the opposite of that. that would, be. would it work in the political realm? Could you get the science up there in front of Congress to explain clearly enough that everybody will be able to say, well, my scientist says something else. You know, no, they, there would actually be some consensus in action. Yeah. And she only talks about this for a short period of time, but... I think she has in mind the idea that you can write down and do things that are unspeakable in a very straightforward sense. Like to do a calculation in mathematics and then try to speak what you're doing. Like in the ter- and for speaking yeah. for her really is making sounds. Writing mm-hmm. doesn't count as speaking for her. Does that follow with, maybe because I misinterpreted that, because I was thinking that they couldn't like articulate that. Well, does philosophy suffer from the same thing? Uh, you know what I mean? That's where you, you are speaking so precisely in a mathematical formula you're, or abstractly to where it does not have the same influence on action because it is so yeah, inarticulable, let's good, say. That's mm-hmm. a very good, yeah. Well, that's where rhetoric comes in, though. That's why when politicians want to convince you that this bill should go through. They don't talk to you about the details of the Affordable Care Act. They go, I visited Janine. Yeah. She's a mother of six in Georgia. And they tell you a story. Yeah, and this is just bad rhetoric. I mean, imagine what it would be like. It's easier to pull on heartstrings than it is to do the groundwork and go through and build up, okay, here's the arguments and here's why. It's a lot easier to just pull on somebody's heartstrings. Right. So rhetoric traditionally for the ancients was a combination of appeals like that with reason. So it's it's not just, that's pandering. Anecdotes plus PowerPoint. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I am not a professional philosopher, but I really do appreciate what you guys do. Part of the beauty of what you guys do, I think, is, is taking something like this where I spent like a month trying to get into this and read it, and I have other stuff going on. It's very difficult. But then this discussion really clarified it for me. Maybe for me, that's not a big deal. It's not going to cause any action to happen, but maybe for somebody else, (laughs) it might. So thank you. Thank you for that. I I will point out that we're not professional philosophers either. So there's hope. So if you do do something, yeah, it's like not being lawyers or doctors. Don't take our advice. (laughs) I just wanted to add one thought to just been talking about in regard to science and scientific debate. I think the issue in the 50s was a matter 
scale size at which things were occurring. To talk about splitting an atom, or to talk about uh, energy bands in, a, in a, an atomic configuration. That's unreal. And I think these analogy to what we talked about before about in order to find reality you had to a group of people had to be able to come together and look at something and say that's true we can agree on the aspects of it and therefore we can say it's real with one mechanics it's a statistical process it's not a deterministic one so that's hard to really agree on and at 0.901 at that size meters, for instance. You can't visualize that. It's not possible to really have a common ground with which to define reality. I think that's where the problem with talking about science in that era, I guess it's still with us, but that's well, the, largely we, due to that. Yeah, we, earlier we were talking about the interpretive problems with quantum mechanics. It seemed like they must be in the background a little bit for her, which still do persist. There's another example not long after this, when is Silent Spring? When it's like the, that's kind of like the birth of the first major environmental concerns too, where yeah. things are happening that you can't see and you can't understand, but they, it took an, uh, a Herculean effort by essentially a non-scientist, right, to change public opinion and change the policymakers. And so it's, that's a non-mathematical version of, I think, the same problem. I think at this point, maybe we take our last question. Does that sound good with you guys? Sure, sure. If uh, revolution is Arendt's definition of political action, authentic political action, and you, you would pose the question, what sort of speech might be there that would make that happen, what would she consider uh, of the gentleman in Tunisia, the fruit seller, who had, mm -hmm. um, had his uh, fruit cart confiscated and then decided to go in front of a government building and self-immolate and caused... Wow, an enormous amount of upheaval that is still reverberating through Syria and such. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a political act of conversation to me. And so I, I don't understand. I, I'll take your word for it that revolution has to be something to do with what she's recommending. But I find it hard to understand. Well, it's not the only what we kind of action. It's a, it's how, like, but if you're saying that the only, what, what is a revolution against? Against the system in which we are having an egalitarian discussion? That's what you'd have to be <laughs> rebelling against. But the, that would undermine the whole process of talking itself. So I don't understand. Well, but, but the it, answer to but, most of your questions is that we know. But, but, this particular, <laughs> but, but this particular case, I feel like she would consider that not, in a funny way, she would consider not a political act because it wasn't speech. I think she's very serious about speech being actual vocalizations and going out and talking, especially later in the book. Now, maybe she's more subtle about it than that, but... Uh, and so, I, I don't know. I mean, doesn't that count as a kind of speech? You know, well, I, 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 want, I want to say that it is it's, because it's, it seems like it is, but I don't. It's an action and speech. Well, but, those, but, but that that would be. It's an open question to me based upon the other yeah, stuff I, that I read about I don't know either, how, yeah. how seriously she means to take speaking. And then in that particular case, I, I want to say that he's sort of displaying his freedom very decisively. But under the criteria of the way she's talking about freedom, she doesn't talk about freedom being exactly that way. I think it's a good question I, about yeah. how she would think about it. I, I, I hope that our listeners don't choose that path, but instead become good spactivists and talk about... Spactivists? Yes, speech and action are the same thing. And talk about all the, the stuff that should be done.
There you go. Not ages. We be, and, and I think we're, we're now done. We've reached some consensus that that is what is going to happen. <laughs> All right. Please join me uh, in, in applauding uh, Partially Examined Life. Thank you and good night. Yes. Thank you and good night. Just say good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you. Thank All you. right. We'll be around. Chat with us. I can feel you tonight Your warmth lurks in this room It's a Russian repeat Like a beautiful tune You've affected my life Unbelievably much And I don't think I even Feel like killing and such And I love this space in front of me And I love this place embracing me Cause you're in it, yes you're in it Every day I get up About three hours late After lying there seething with you My omnipresent mate Even though you're not physically here I'm convinced that you're not only near But you've claimed this place as your identity And whenever I'm in it, you're practically me And I love this space in front of me And I love this place confronting me Cause you're in it, yes you're in it Yes you're in it Though I truly believe that you're normal and real Persist in this place stronger than I can feel When I scrub the toilets you moan with delight If I mow the lawn, can I edge you goodnight? And I've fallen in love with this magical house And I hope you come home, my omnipresent spouse And I love this space in front of me And I love this place confronting me Cause you're in it Yes, you're in it Yes, you're in it